Hi everyone, it's Gracie with Self Care with Gracie. Welcome back to the podcast. I am thinking of us all because we are in this really interesting transition here on the East Coast of the seasons, where we're in moving from winter into spring. And I always think this is just an extra moment for self-care because it's a big transition. If we think of all the animals moving out of their, their hibernation states out into the world. So I'm, I'm very happy to have a moment to pause today and practice a little bit of extra self-care with my guest, who is Annie Mayen. Hi, Annie. Welcome. Hi, Gracie. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I've known Annie over the years through the DC yoga connection and just different different great people I know around town always know Annie. So I was really happy to get connected uh, through her newsletter, which is Raw Mindfulness and her blog, Raw Mindfulness. And when I reached out to her about being on the podcast, she was very gracious to come be with us today. So Annie, I'm going to read your bio here. Um, Annie Mann is an author, ordained minister, Buddhist mindfulness teacher, and founder of the Circle Yoga Cooperative in Washington, D.C. Annie has always enjoyed writing about her life, from journalistic pursuits at the University of Michigan to technical papers for IBM and Oracle. You're a really great writer, Annie. I really always love your writing. I have to say that. Thank you. She's been writing about mindfulness, parenting, stress, and yoga since 2004. Her blog, rawmindfulness.com, is a hit with the mindfulness and yoga community and led to Annie's a book of Annie's collected essays, Words to Be With. Annie's second book, Things I Did When I Was Hangry, documents Annie's search for sanity in her eating disordered family life and reveals how mindfulness helped her go beyond the search for perfection and learn to love the moment as it is. There's so much I want to unpack it just in your bio right there, but I'd love to start more about you of, of your journey to, to find mindfulness in your own life and what has, what has brought you here. Sure, I would love to talk about that. One of my favorite subjects, mindfulness, and how it's been helpful in my life. Um, yeah, I discovered mindfulness in the 90s, really. Um, I actually, I originally discovered meditation when I was a teenager. Um, I was pretty troubled as a teenager. Um, I used a lot of drugs and alcohol and just kind of not very settled. And I discovered this little book on what was called self-hypnosis which really was like guided meditation. And I would sit in my room and practice this and found how great it was. It was really helpful, like, you know, just to relax my body and my mind. But, I mean, that, you know, I lost the book and I just um, kept living my life and forgot about it for many, many years. Um, although I always was really attracted to yoga, meditation, just reading about it. But I really didn't discover it in any kind of concrete way until um, after I had my four kids in three years that I had. And um, my life, yeah, it was kind of hectic. I was working part-time. Um, and, and I really needed something. And I would read books. And someone recommended this book by Thich Nhat Hanh that was called The Miracle of Mindfulness. And I thought, oh, that's great. Um, and I read the book. And when I read the book, I thought to myself, like a few weeks earlier, my mom had asked me this question. If you were on a desert island, you, had, you could only bring one book, what book would you bring? And my mom teaches writing and taught writing, and she was um, very well read. And I said, well, I don't know, I guess I would probably bring the Bible because there's lots of good stories in it. It's long. You've got a lot to read. But when I read this book, The Miracle of Mindfulness, like in the moment I was reading it, I was like, no, no, this is a book. 
this is the book because this book, Miracle of Mindfulness, it was just so true to me. Like everything Thich Nhat Hanh wrote in there about how if we're not present, we miss our whole life, how simple it can be to like pay attention to our tea or our walking. I mean, I just couldn't believe how much truth was in this tiny little book. Um, and really, since then, I really would say that's probably still the book I would take. Um, so anyway, I found this book. I read it. I was like, oh, yes, this, this, this. And so I tried a little bit of dabbling and meditation. And my life was, as I said, pretty chaotic. Um, and one day when my kids were like six, seven, seven, and nine, I think they were, I saw an advertisement in the Omega um, Institute catalog for a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh. And I was just like, oh, I have got to get there. And so, um, but I had these four kids. But in the little fine print, it said you could bring kids as long as they were six and older. And so I was just like, okay, I'm definitely going. I'm getting them in the car. I'm going to get in our station wagon and drive up there. And I have a husband, I had a husband at that time too, and I knew he wouldn't want anything to do with it. And so I just said, I'm going to bring these four kids and we're going to go to this retreat. I'd never been to anything like it. I didn't really know anything about it except what I read in this book. Um, and I got there and it was really, it, it was pretty intense because they gave us a room with two twin beds and it was a tiny little room and five of us in there. And the kids didn't really want to be there and they were crabby and tired and they were young. Um, but that one week being in a sangha and a community like that of practitioners really, really changed my whole life. Um, because I saw, oh, there's a different way to live. Like you can be nice to people. <laughs> you can be, you know, like I had been in this kind of like judgy, you know, kind of bitchy, like that's sort of how I was raised a, bit, a little bit. And um, kind of negative and competitive and just kind of not very happy much of the time. It's kind of always a little tense. And being in this environment, I was like, wow, this is like a different world. And my kids really enjoyed that kind of slowing down and playing soccer with the monks and nuns and just a kind of a different lifestyle. And I promised myself as I drove away from that retreat that I would find a way to bring that into my life. Um, and that was now 20 years ago. And since that day, I really have, I mean, I've had obviously lots of fits and starts, but I've really managed to weave it into my life in lots and lots of different ways. And so really now it's, it's most of my life. Most of my life is mindfulness and meditation and um, what they call in the Buddhist practice, the Buddha Dharma Sangha. It's like, I really take refuge in the teachings um, of mindfulness and the Buddha and my community of practitioners. So that's sort of the big picture story of how it came about. But Wonderful. Annie, that story about driving with your four kids, too. I was, like, feeling anxiety for you. In that. I, I'm an 18-month-old right now. Just the idea of bringing him to the grocery store is a lot. <laughs> yes, yes. Right, so you can imagine. I, I wrote about this in one of my books, the um, moment we got there. So we didn't have time to have dinner when we arrived at this retreat. And so everybody was hungry, but we had to go right into the meditation hall with, like, hundreds of people. And we sat up in the front because that's where families would sit. 
And Thich Nhat Hanh was giving a little orientation talk, and so we were right up there in the front, like, you know, second row kind of thing. And we're all there, and the kids are hey, I'm hungry, oh, oh. And I was like, shh, shh, because we're, like, right in the front, and, you know, he's looking right at us. And so um, I was having to keep everybody calm and quiet, rubbing backs and heads, and like, shh, shh, calm. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, who was nine, was just, like, not having any of it. And so she grabbed the key to our room, and she started walking out in this crowd of people. And I was just like, oh, my God, what do I do? Like, I can't yell at her. I can't just get out there, you know. I can't really say anything loud. And I've got these other three kids. I can't just run out. And someone in the um, audience, like other people, would like to sort of gently brought her back to me. And I was like, wow, like, who's that nice? Like, I couldn't believe how nice and understanding everybody was, and everybody really was. So that hadn't been my experience previous, you know, and that hadn't been my attitude, but I just got to see, wow, people were really tolerant and kind and compassionate. Yeah, it was amazing. (laughs) Sounds like they were really doing their spiritual practice on that moment. Yes, right. And I I guess guess I just hadn't been around many people who were like that. And so it was, I mean, probably other people would be like, well, that's normal. Of course, people are like that. But I honestly hadn't been exposed to that kind of kindness um, before in in such a big way. Yay. What a beautiful introduction to the concept of the Sangha, the community. Mm -hmm. You said something earlier when you you found Thich Nhat Hanh's book about how you're reading it and you're like, well, what does it mean to like miss your life? Can you say yeah. a little bit more about, about what that, that means? Yeah, well, when I read it, I was like, oh, wow, I've been missing my life. Like when I'm running after something, like when I'm in that mode of like future orientation constantly, it, or like worrying or even just like imagining, like when I'm in that kind of forward thinking, I'm missing actually what's happening. So you can imagine with four little kids and that kind of chaos that you're, you know, you're trying to like manage all that. So your mind is rarely in the present moment with them. Um, And so reading that, I was like, yeah, you know, I have missed so much of my life because I'm either worrying or I'm remembering the past and sort of rehashing it or, you know, thinking about what a victim I am of something or, you know, and just reading that about like, wow, you can stop. And you could taste your tea, like, or taste your food, and, like, be really in that moment. That was really eye-opening for me. Um, And that's really the foundation of my practice to this day, is can I really just drop into this moment? Like, even right here talking to you, like, what's it feel like to be sitting here in my office talking to you um, about mindfulness? You know, can I just be in that? And it's scary and it's amazing at the same time. You know, it's like, oh, life is so much bigger and more, there's more, so much more sensation in it than I ever thought before. Yes, yes. Well, this, is, this has been my experience of becoming a parent over these past couple of years, is that I, spending time with my son, Jonah, is both very, very boring and it's also very like it's very real like I realized how much time I had spent before kind of distracting myself by staying busy by all like the deadlines and the excitement of life and 
And then when I'm with Jonah, like we just have to be with each other. And the the name of your blog, I always liked it, but like it feels really relevant now because it's raw. It's like raw <laughs> to be there with him and all of his emotions. It's raw to be there and not be able to distract myself. And just for both of us to be together. And yet I, I have this very deep sense that I'm truly living my life in those moments. What a gift. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can't give him anything more than that. Really, that's that's the only thing we can really give our loved ones. And I, you know, I regret so much of the time that I wasn't there. Because even after I found the practice, not like I could do it right away. You know, now I find I can be more present. But even now, I mean, there are, you know, I think we all have this conditioning. Not just if we have difficult childhoods, but even if we had decent childhoods, you know, that the conditioning of the culture is so strong that we have to really resist it a lot. You know, not easy. Say more about the conditioning of the culture. What What is it like to have a spiritual practice and a culture that, that kind of asks us not to have a spiritual practice often? Right. Well, it particularly doesn't want us to stop and be present, you know. It's like, it, because if we stop in a really present um we don't need a lot of things, you know. We're not like, oh, I have to have this or I have to have that. Because when we stop and we're just there, we have so much there already. You know, it's so rich in the moment. Um, so I think that's one way in which we're kind of propelled out of the moment. But also there are just so many awesome, fun things to do and see. And, I mean, just even like cool TV shows now where you're like, yeah. I kind of don't feel like being present. <laughs> let me just turn on a really great show. I mean, there are so many great ways to distract ourselves now. Or let me just see if anyone's texting me or check on my social media. Or, you know, it's just, you know, I mean, I'm 56. So when I was younger, there, you know, there weren't as many. There still was TV, and trust me, I watched a lot of it. But there, you know, it wasn't always, always available. It wasn't something, you know, really fun and amazing, always available. And so, was a little bit more you had to kind of be there. And I could notice a big difference between myself and my kids' generation in terms of that ease of wanting to be distracted, you know? Like, I like to be distracted, too. Don't get me wrong, I watch shows and stuff. But I don't have quite that stickiness around it that I see in this next generation where it's just, like, almost like the pressure of their generation is to be distracted and to know everything that's happened on these shows and to always be distracted. Um, so I feel like it's even harder for the next generation. I've always thought of yoga as a bit of a subversive practice. <laughs> like you think of, of like the yogis in India, like they're, they're kind of weird people. Like they, they, the sadhus, <laughs> they wander around, they're they're not romanticized really it's like about being like super gritty and going against the grain I, I and I'm simplifying things there but just some, it was like a realization I had of like wow this is like kind of subversive so in this period of time where I think we're all looking for tools of resistance like how do we we see that culture is going in a direction that isn't honoring of humanity in many ways and how do we resist and it can feel easy to get caught up in the wanting to like be on social media and post more and but what does it mean just to slow down? Yes. Yes. Well, I think it's totally subversive. Um, and one of the reasons it feels to me the most revolutionary is this idea of sangha. 
um, of coming together and actually, you know, making real relationships with people, like interacting in a deep way with people, talking about meaningful things, about deep things, about suffering, you know, really um, talking about it and feeling it together. And I think that, you know, everything about this culture doesn't want that either, really. You know, it doesn't, because it doesn't serve sort of that bigger, again, for lack of a better term, the capitalist way, right? It doesn't serve that. If we're together and we're just happy and we're just hanging out and, you know, enjoying, you know, a very simple meal or some looking at the sunset or something, we're not buying anything. You know, we're not producing. We're not buying and we're not producing. And so it is very revolutionary to come together and to really talk openly about things and to be together and to enjoy each other's company and and it doesn't happen as much. And I think as time goes by, I see less and less of that. Yeah, I don't know if you see that too. Do you notice that too? I do. I do. I, I think we're hungry for community. And community is different than just having people that you hang out with. I think that's been a big lesson for me. Like you can kind of like calories, like you can eat just a bunch of junk and not really mm-hmm. feel full at the end of that. But there's a different quality to community. And, and it feels very um, primal in some ways. Mm. And it also feels really futuristic in some ways. <laughs> Just like, what is it to be whole? Because I think what, what I understand about community is that a lot of us get stressed out about the pressure of belonging, mm. what we have to do to kind of be accepted in a community. And it seems like in some ways we want to just be on our own and be really independent and living in the United States we're kind of descended from people who <laughs> wanted to leave the pack and in some ways we're forced to leave the pack in other ways so I think we have a lot of intergenerational trauma around um, leaving community or being forced to leave community and to go back into it now feels like we're all super hungry for it but but to really allow ourselves to be exposed I think it's scary for it's scary for me. I, I lead communities as a live for a living. That's what I do in, in my self care work. I almost always work in groups because I think the power of community is so powerful. But when I am in a community where it's like a real community, I get really scared to be there and really fully be myself. And yet when I can do it, it's totally transformational. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you're scared, you mean you're but scared about saying what's really true for you. Yeah, like letting go of the, the, the armor, my armor, like my image. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, letting go and just like being there with people, be letting, you know, seeing each other. Yeah, that's really hard. That is really hard. And, and you're right, I think that's where the transformation comes from, is just letting go of all of that, like our roles and our, you know, image and our, you know, job titles and stuff. And just being right there raw with each other, you know. Yeah, totally. How, yeah. how did you come up with the name for your blog? Well, I was trying to find something that really um, would carry the energy that I want to um, I want to be teaching. Because even within the mindfulness community, and you probably have seen this, um, there sometimes can be like an image thing. Like it's it's really about that, about kind of like, you know what, life is super messy. And, you know, we, we don't come to this like in some perfect way. It's not, you know, it's not like I went on that retreat and the next day, like everything in my life is perfect and I never have any problems. And, you know, and Thich Nhat Hanh actually talks a good amount about this, about how nirvana 
is not doesn't mean that we don't have suffering. It just means we know how to transform suffering. We know how to um, make use of our suffering in order to become more compassionate and to become more kind. Um, so I felt like I, in, I find that actually, if I just aside on mindful eating, which is one of the things I, the main thing I was writing about in my second book was about my eating disorders and mindful eating. And I find that this comes up a lot for me. I get really triggered by a lot of mindful eating things because it does still have a flavor of, you know, well, if you eat mindfully, then you can be skinny or whatever it is, yeah, you know, yeah. like there's still this kind of like trying to get to a certain look or, or way of being or to be seen a certain way um, or to be good or to be right, you know, that I feel like isn't super helpful for us in our practice. Like if we're trying, if really the end goal, for me, the end goal is collective enlightenment, is really all of us together can really start to see the truth about the world, which is generally a good thing. The world is really an amazing place, and we're all interconnected, right? The interbeing that Tikhan talks about, the interdependence, and there is suffering, but the suffering can be transformed into compassion and kindness and joy, um, and so all of those things are true, and there isn't any way to reach perfection. And I worry because I see sometimes mindfulness being used to, like, you know, be a better this or a better that, or, you know. And it's really, um, yeah, it's really, for me, that raw mindfulness is like, you know what? It's raw. It's not easy. It's not always pleasant. There's suffering just by nature of being present. You're going to feel things more. Um, and, it, and it's not neat and tidy. I'm just going to... You know, it's kind of funny that I'm that I called that because part of me hates that it is imperfect. Like there's a big part of me that wants it to be easy and perfect. That wants to not hurt anymore. You know, I had this um, huge um, awareness of insight at a ten day silent retreat many years ago. I was there, and on these longer retreats where you're silent all the time. Usually on, like, the third day, you're kind of, like, you know, stuff starts coming up, and you're, like, you know, dealing with your mind, bringing all these things up. And on the third day, I'm sitting there meditating, and I was really cold. And some guy got up and opened the window. Just, like, it was freezing out. He opened the window. And I was, like, oh, my God. Like, my mind just went crazy inside, like, you know, attacking him inside my mind. And then I realized, oh, I'll never be free of anger. Like, anger just arises, you know? I can never be some perfect person that never gets angry. And I literally had to go to my room after that sitting and cry for, like, an hour and sob. <laughs> I was like, oh, because there's a part of all of us that wants to not have to feel, you know, that wants to wants it to be perfect, but it isn't, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> That's why it's raw. Yeah. Oh, yes. Thank you for saying all of that. It's so important that I hear that right now <laughs> in my life. And that I, I think everyone is listening, that we can come. It feels like a form of denial to me mm. that the, or the perfectionism where we can just hide in the, in the illusion that we could ever be perfect or things could ever be perfect so we don't have to deal with the pain, like having to go cry for an hour after realizing, like, this is real and I'm real. And... and things hurt yeah 
I, yeah. I go like every week to therapy and I sit and I talk to my therapist and I pretty much have the same insight every single week, which is like, it, it's all going really well and it's super messy and that's really hard for me. Yes. Well, and, and, and can we actually go one step further with that and be like, yeah, and I have this part of me that wants to be perfect and that's okay too. You know, like that's, that's part of the messiness, but I don't even get to be perfectly imperfect. Like, I've got a part that wants to be perfect. It creates suffering in me. So it's kind of like, you know, that's why it's so helpful to be able to sort of loosen our grip on all of it. Just be like, okay, hello, perfection, water, you know, or hello, anger. It's kind of sweet in us. It's like when we can just kind of take that that imperfect and perfectionist view. <laughs> <laughs> of it all and be like oh it's sweet there's this part of me that that just is looking for a safe place right now and and yeah. I, when I find it it feels good for like three seconds until the next thing kind of arises that pops that bubble that I get pissed off at yes yeah and in my um so one of the things I practice is interrelationship focusing which is um Anne Weiser Cornell's practice which comes out of Jean Genlin but it's a mindfulness kind of practice I think of it as a mindfulness practice it is being able to really um, see these parts when they come up and so if we can get to the point where we can say like to that perfectionist part like well no wonder you're like that you know you got you know so much from that when you were younger like that's how you felt good about yourself like when we can find that kind of connection that empathy with that part of ourselves really big transformation can happen then it's like oh no wonder you're that way that makes sense of course you are yeah um, it really softens everything. I, I felt it when you said it. I was like, oh, it's so sweet. <laughs> yes. It's the, yeah. the compassion. It works. Yes, it really, it really does. does. It really, yeah, it, it does, does work. <laughs> what has it been like for you to go from having these realizations about yourself and your own life, which I understand you just continue to have because we're all human, <laughs> getting some spiritual teachings and starting to teach people does not make you uh, this stuff go away, <laughs> as I've learned. Um, but what, but what is it like? To, to, yeah, I know. I thought about that too. But, but what a relief. <laughs> <Another way. laughs> yes, yeah. But what is it like to help other people learn about mindfulness and to teach what you have been taught? Well, I'm not sure because really I can't imagine any other way to be. It's just that um, that's how I learn. That's one of the ways that I integrate is by teaching. And so I, I can't, really couldn't imagine doing it any other way. I'm not sure what, how I could have integrated it in any other way. Um, but I really enjoy so much when people... Um, you know, have that moment of like, oh, yeah. You know, especially interestingly, because really my favorite moments, two of my favorite kind of moments are the moment when someone is like, oh, I see why I do that. Like what we just talked about. Like, oh, no wonder I do that, you know, or having that moment of kind of um, insight about themselves that takes away some of that self-flagellation that we all are doing these days. Um, for me, that's just a huge thing because the less we're flagellating ourselves, the less we're going to do it to others, you know, and that that's a big shift to be able to see like, oh, I'm just a human. I don't need to like attack myself. So that's one of the things I love to see. But the other thing that, um, is just so delicious to me is like when I find out or I see people that came together in a class I taught or like at the yoga studio I founded or like 
um, people in our, our meditation sangha are creating bond with each other. Like, I remember I used to see people leaving the yoga studio, going out to lunch together, and it would, like, make me cry. Because there's something about creating community that is so in my path. And I don't know why, like, I have no idea why, but for me, that just feels, like, so good. It just feels, it makes me almost feel safe. Like, oh, people are connecting, making real connections with each other because of something I offered because of this space or whatever that I feel so good about that. And so those are two of my most favorite things to really bring to people. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I relate so much to, to all of that. And I, I really like what you said about teaching being the way that you integrate what you're learning. Mm-hmm. It's like you have to, um, you learn by teaching and I, I, I'm always, I think before I was like, oh, you know, I kind of feel like we're all leaders, but it's everybody's choice whether or not you like step up. And now I'm like, no, I think we, we just kind of need to all do that. <laughs> like the, time, <laughs> the times are upon us that if you have, a, if you've been lucky enough in this lifetime to receive any kind of spiritual wisdom, to, that our responsibility from there is to teach it to other people, not just for them, but for ourselves as well. So we can really own it. And it's, mm. For me, it was so scary to start teaching yoga. It was like 11 years ago. And to teach the first yoga classes that I taught. And like, who? what do I know about this? And I really thought all of my students were judging me. It was such a, it was such a reflection of where my own insecurities at the time. Mm-hmm. But then as I did it and I got comfortable and I received some feedback, it was like, oh, I can do this. And, it, and part of the doing it for me is letting it be very imperfect. But just mm-hmm. the commitment to stay with it. And, and when people ask me, like, oh, how, how did you get started? I'm like, I was just, it was messy, I guess. And I, I just, I, I stuck with it because I believe, I believe in the teachings in that way. So it's, I, yeah. I do think the time is upon us for us to be teaching each other more. Mm-hmm. And what do you love about, what are some of your favorite things that you love about teaching? Yeah, I, I, I like what you said about the, the seeing connections form. Mm-hmm. I, I really believe in the intelligence of a group. And it was something that when I was teaching yoga, I felt it in the room. And I was like, something's happening here that's more than the sum of all the parts. This is not 30 bodies in a room doing yoga together. There's like a bigger intelligence that's moving right now. Mm-hmm. But because I was the one teaching, I was kind of channeling it and saying it and I could feel it. And I could feel on days where it was super sticky and it was really hard to get going. And I could feel on days when it was really electric and everyone was really with it. And I just got curious about what that energy was about. And when I started to do more retreats, I felt it more that people were things were people were kind of acting stuff out with each other as they interacted more throughout the weeks and weekends. And I, I took a training about three years ago as a nine month long training on integral facilitation. Mm-hmm. It's taught by Diane Musho Hamilton. She's a Zen Buddhist teacher out in Salt Lake City, and she's also a, a facilitator. And she she believes that you can, by holding this kind of space and helping people by facilitating a conversation with mindfulness, that you can um, surface conflict that people it's usually long held in people, but in the moment of people being able to face it mindfully together, that you heal it. Hmm. And so it's it's deep the work she does, and I've I've studied it, and I don't think I've been able to practice it in the in the deepest form that I've seen her her really orchestrate it. But it, even just in a, a conversation like the groups where I lead a phone call to feel like oh this one theme is just coming up again and again, and everybody share 
You'd be like, okay, that's the intelligence. So I, I love, I love being the, like the channel of that and like leading from that place. Wow, that sounds really cool. I am so looking that up after this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 10 Directions is the uh, kind of bigger overbranching part. And, um, and she wrote a book called Everything is Workable, which mm-hmm. is about Zen Buddhism and conflict resolution. And I, I find Diane's teachings to be so powerful because they're so real. She's so raw and she's so real and she's so... Is she's so fiercely devoted to the present moment when you're with her, and I can it, it, it's really impacted me. So mm. I I love I love all of that. I love having teachers that I, I try to emulate, and then finding my own way along the path as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know um, when you were talking, it made me think. You know that one of the other things that feels really important um, for someone like yourself, especially, and you know I had a lot of students with kids is that I think people who are staying home with kids or even part-time home with kids are very isolated and that having community, you know, a spiritual community like a yoga class or a meditation group or whatever is super important. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I I think that was what I didn't fully realize about motherhood before I stepped into it. It's just you think you're going to feel the sense of, I thought I was going to feel the sense of like never-ending connection. Mm -hmm. And I do. But there's a lot of loneliness that comes with that as well. Well, and for me, so I have a little soapbox on that, but I don't think that's natural necessarily. I think that's just the way that our culture has evolved for various reasons. I wrote my master's thesis a little bit on something like this, some angle of this. But, like, we're not really meant to be living alone like that in a nuclear family, you know, without anyone else around. Like, we're meant to have more support for child-rearing. And that... So even though we feel, you know, we feel isolated because we actually are isolated more than we should be. And that's really hard and no one talks about it. No one, you know, does anything about it. And so I have so much compassion for people who are home with their kids. Mm, yeah. Thanks for saying that. And yeah. I, yeah. I, what it, what's really helped me in that, and it's, 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 I'm not by any means out of the woods on that one. Like I'm looking for more ways to get support for myself, but it, to really think of Jonah, he goes to daycare three days a week in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a part of me when he went in the daycare that I felt kind of like I was letting him down. Like, mm-hmm. like I, like I couldn't do it all by, cause I was sitting in there when he was four months old and I should stay with him for longer. But a friend of mine gave me a really great reframe where she was like, normally in a village, you would have like your aunts and your mother and like all the people (laughs) around you who would take your son. And you don't have that because you live in this neighborhood of Washington, D.C. But what you have Mm -hmm. is this daycare that's two blocks away and they can become like the aunts who can help you. And it really shifted how I felt. So now I'm just so grateful when I walk into his daycare. I'm so grateful to the women who care for him all day. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yes, yes, they're helping our family so much right now. Yes, and that is how we need. We need to be able to have support like that. But, of course, you know, not everybody can afford to have that. Um, But also, it's just, you know, it's sad that we lost that. I guess that's how I feel. It's sad that we've lost that whole sort of anti, you know, my mom grew up in her household. Both of her grandmothers lived with them. So her mom was free to come and go, you know. And then I think around that time, that was, you know, my mom was born in 1933. So, you know, around that time of her lifetime is when things really shifted into much more, at least for, you know, certain classes of people in this country, it shifted. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I'm, I'm curious to go a little further with, with that lens, too. Um, I have, I've run into you at, at protests around town, and, and I know that you have a social justice practice. But how, how do you integrate those worlds of your, your world of, of spiritual teaching and study and practice and then uh, this world outside of us where there's a lot of things that, that I think need to be worked on? Yeah. Well, for me, that's a that's part of my practice because it's really dealing with my internal biases, my conditioning that is harmful. You know, the conditioning I have that's harmful, I need to transform it. And um, and I do that not just for myself, but for the world. Um, and so, and I also use the lens that I've been using, which I love now, which um, I got with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. I spent a week at a retreat with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship out in California, um, and actually one of the co-directors is my spiritual advisor slash um, director, spiritual director, and they use this paradigm, Black Bill B, so that we're, um, we have all three of those aspects as part of our practice, so there's blocking harmful actions, which if you look at the precepts, the Buddhist precepts or the Thich Nhat Hanh calls them the five mindfulness trainings, those are about blocking harmful actions. Um, block and then there's build so that's like building community building positive things in the world you know creating organizations um, and then there's B which is my practice my personal transformation practice like how do I show up in the world and all three of those um, are really valuable and important so that's one of the paradigms I use and then another thing is um, Thich Nhat Hanh who is my main teacher I mentioned a few times already the Zen master um, he grew, you know, he was raised in Vietnam during the um, Vietnam War, and um, so he has an angle on practice. Um, he calls it engaged practice, but he talks about how he did not take sides in the conflict, um, and that's why he was exiled from his country because he refused to take sides. And at the same time. He did everything he could to um, resist injustice and to help the people who were suffering. So when we had this last election, not the last election, but the 2016 election, um, you know, people were asking, and I was asking, like, how do I use my practice here? Like, what do I do? And I really had to turn back to his teachings, which are, don't take sides, but never stop fighting against injustice. Um, and that sounds well, okay, that's easy, like how facile. No, it's the hardest thing because if you don't take sides, everybody hates you. <laughs> that's why he was exiled. You know, everybody thinks that you're on the other side if you don't take sides. So that's actually a really deep practice that I, you know, I don't do well. But that's sort of one of the ways that I, um, I look at it. Is like how can I. Um, how can I not take sides but still not give up on, and never become complacent? You know, that's another, another Buddhist teacher told me that one time about never becoming complacent. Um, so that means we never get to just be comfortable and be like, oh, yay, I'm done, everything's great. No, it's always, it's a, until we take our last breath, we're practicing to transform ourselves and to help everyone reach collective enlightenment or collective awakening, whatever we want to call it, um, for the benefit of, of all beings. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a daily, one day at a time. If we thought about it over our whole life, we'd be like, oh, my God, I'm exhausted just thinking about it. But if we take it one day at a time, you know, one phone call at a time, we can get there. You know, we just stay attentive to it. Like, this is my practice. This is the next step in my practice. Thank you for sharing all that. There's 
so many valuable things that, that came up. I love the the um, block build B. I'm gonna use that. That's really great because it is. It's it's a balance of all of those things. It's like just if your your whole life is blocking, that sounds exhausting to me. <laughs> well, it's not good for anybody. I don't think it's good for you either. You know, it's not good for. And it doesn't really. You know, if you show up angry, like I, I've been at protests, um, you know, where people are violent, and I'm not sure. You know, I don't. I'm not a hundred percent saying that there isn't. At some point, there could be a need for violence for certain things or self-defense or whatever. But I think if you're just showing up violent and angry, you're not really bringing much to the table. So blocking sometimes we might need it, but sometimes you know it can't be all. And what I feel in that is that it's like, it's, it's habit. That if this is just a habitual response that anytime anything comes into our spirit, we just get angry at it. Like that's not very helpful, but some like righteous anger when something comes up and you're like, no, 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 we're not doing that. And that, that righteous anger, I'm so attracted by that. And I really love that when it comes out of myself and other people and to just be, to be habitually, like, I, oh, I don't get involved, I'm just being, I'm going to sit here in my meditation <laughs> cushion, that feels very habitual, and kind of, like, there's a lot under the surface, but how to just, oh, I'm usually angry, but, you know, I'm going to set this one out, so it's, <laughs> I, I feel like there's a real skillfulness in looking at how we always respond, and then seeing how in the moment we can actually choose a, a more effective action, and in that, there, there's a lot of personal development that I think has to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Annie, this has been such a great conversation. I, I just love your wisdom and, and you. You're just such a, a embodied woman. It's, it's really great to have you here. Well, it has been so much fun. I literally could talk to you for hours, but I realized you probably have to end. So well, well, I always have one last question I like to ask all of my guests, which is what does self-care mean for you in your life? Hmm. Yeah, self-care for me means that I'm not trying to, uh, one of the things it means is I'm not trying to um, focus my attention on what other people want and need all the time. That's a habit of mine is to create safety for myself by making sure other people are not mad at me or not, you know, whatever, not having a hard time or something. And so, um, Self-care for me means to focus on myself. What am I, what do I want to transform in me? And so what do I need to do that? Um, so it's not being a victim, but also not being a perpetrator, like really trying to stay centered in like, you know, what is it that I need to transform? Um, and then that's sort of the deeper one. And then on the other hand, um, right now for me, self-care means I'm spending most of my time um, living at the um, house we have that's in the Blue Ridge Mountains um, and waking up among the trees there every day and going out hiking with my dogs every day there and hugging the, um, the tree that I love, this one tree that I really adore, this um, sycamore, I think it is. I'm not great with the different trees, but like being out there and having the quiet and the space and the time, and that's one of the ways that I do self-care now. Hot bath is also great for me, like having time to just chill out in the bathtub. Um, I have lots of different things like that I do. Every morning I do um, read spiritual books and make a few notes on them, and that's really important for my self-care because it sort of starts my day. I do that, and then I have a gratitude list. 
I also um, have a list of metta that I write, my metta in the morning, my um, prayers for people, myself and other people. So all of that, there's a lot of things that I've learned over the years of what kind of centers me. Going to Sangha regularly, staying connected that way. And then one that we all struggle with is saying no. <laughs> saying no to things um, is a big part of my self-care of saying, you know, letting go of feeling like I'm going to miss out on something and just be like, you know what, that's going to, I know in the long run, I will, it will wear me out and I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. So. That's a deep one. That's a deep one for me. And I just from getting responses in the world around sharing about FOMO, like it's a deep one for a lot of us. It's so hard, isn't it? It's like, oh, I don't want to miss out. Like, everyone I love is going to be there. I really want to be there. It'll be so great. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's really, really hard, but it's a practice. Totally. Yeah. Yes. And for, for me, what I've learned about it too is just like, I have to be willing to just go through some grief. Because even, yeah. even if it's something really small, I'm just going to feel a little bit of grief about making that decision. So it's like making the decision, <laughs> taking the hit, then knowing I can do it. Yeah. Well, you know what helped me on that a little bit is having really clear priorities about my mission. So that helps me a little bit because I can be like, is that right in the middle of my mission? No. Okay. Then I can give myself a little bit of like a, oh, you can say no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. That is great. So. Oh, well, Annie, for those of, of the listeners that would like to stay connected to your work, how can people stay in touch with you? Well, definitely hop on my website, rawmindfulness.com, and you can subscribe to my email, um, which I recently have someone helping me. We're sending out now weekly um, video of either video or my monthly blog. So on the other weeks when I don't have a blog, we send a video that's a meditation or a conversation or um, something like that. So that's a new practice for me, and it's kind of fun, and I think you'll enjoy it. So go on rawmindfulness.com is the best way to find me. Yeah. And as I said, Annie's a really wonderful writer. Uh, just, just, you know, whatever I read her words, I always just embrace back to mindfulness. So do get on her mailing list and... Thanks so much for being here. I'd love to have you back on the podcast again and we can continue our conversation more. Oh, I would love to. It's so fun. (laughs) And for all of you listening out there, I really invite you to to ponder what raw mindfulness means for you. And within that, that, that just to open the doors, I think we suffer most when we think that anything has to look a certain way. And, and I love what Annie has said today about how messy and hard and wonderful the process of really being ourselves is. So I welcome you to take some time to, to explore that for yourself. And as always, please keep taking excellent care of yourself. So thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Gracie with Beautiful Life Self-Care. Thanks so much for listening to the show. I hope you learned something new. If you want to connect more, then visit me at selfcarewithgracie.com. There you can sign up for my weekly newsletter where on Wednesday afternoons, I'll send you more self-care practices, more inspiration, and more opportunity to connect to a community of people who really care about really good self-care. Also write me if you have any other questions or if you have ideas for future shows. My email address is selfcarewithgracie at gmail.com. Thanks a lot. And remember, keep putting yourself first and everything else will fall into place.